Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the second part of Angus Horden's conversation with Andrew Robertson. We released the first volume of this episode yesterday, so be sure you listen to that first and you'll hear about Andrew's experiences in World War II and Korea. Today's episode covers Andrew's experiences in Vietnam, a near-death crash in London, and the career of a senior Navy officer. This is the rest of their talk for Life on the Line. Enjoy. So, Andrew, after the coronation, where did you head? Well, the Sydney then was sent up to replace the British carrier on the west coast of Korea again. By this time, they were talking at Panmunjong, so the guns weren't actually firing and the bombs weren't being dropped, but we practised the whole day. And, of course, the Sydney could put up 30 aircraft if it wanted to. It was a uh, extremely uh, powerful small carrier because the... The main aircraft were the uh, excellent Sea Fury fighter bomber and the uh, Firefly anti-submarine aircraft, which is also an attack aircraft with bombs and rockets and so on. And that was a very uh, formidable force. And we were the carrier on the west coast, ready to go at any moment uh, for that second one. I was then posted from her, much to my astonishment, to go to London. So I uh, flown back to Australia and uh, with my wife, we went then to Britain and I was then on the staff in Australia House in London for two years. A very interesting time for our relations with the Royal Navy were extremely close and anything that we wanted, they would fall over backwards to give us and uh, they paid for half the hull costs of the aircraft carriers Sydney and Melbourne, which almost nobody knows about. But they gave us the most tremendous aid in anything we wanted. And from there, I was posted down to the naval headquarters in in Melbourne, it was then, before uh, Mr Menzies uh, ordered the government to move up to, to uh, Canberra. I was the gunnery officer on the staff, and I was called out to be the flag lieutenant to the admiral the chief of the Navy, because he didn't have a flag lieutenant. And so I went to things like, because it was my, the, the gunnery world looked after gas warfare and they looked after nuclear warfare. So uh, I was had, went with him to nuclear explosions at um, one of them at uh, Marilinga and uh, those sorts of things. And uh, it could not have been a more interesting time. How did you feel dealing with Menzies? Mr Menzies? He'd come to sea with us in the Anzac, and he was a delightful man. He uh, used to come down the wardroom, and he was a great, one of the world's great raconteurs. He could mimic people, and he was full of fun and laughter, 
And then we get on to our favourite uh, things that we all as young officers thought ought to happen with Australia and why he'd, he'd tell us why it could or couldn't and what people are thinking about. He was very forthright and very frank and he knew that it was Chatham House rules which were thoroughly obeyed. So when many reflect on the greatness of Menzies and, and how he led Australia after the war, you, you'd fully appreciate that position? Absolutely. I had met, of course, Mr Curtin during the war because he, uh, he was a West Australian and I was in the train with him once going across. And so we used to play, we played chess. Uh, and and uh, uh, But Mr Curtin was a man of a very different uh, character to, and ability to... Uh, to uh, Mr Menzies. Of course, Mr Curtin was very powerful in the trade union movement and uh, uh, he had his, of course, great supporters. But uh, Mr Menzies really took Australia forward in enormous leaps over the 15-odd years or whatever it was that he was the Prime Minister after the war. And uh, a lot of us had very great respect for him. He was very brave. He, In the coal miners' strike, when people were crying... Blue murder. He went down to talk to them, and uh, used to go without any escort. Uh, nobody with him, except his driver, and uh, it was a different world. Speaking of the world, you're leaving the political and the administrative roles, and you're moving back into a command of a ship. Can you tell us about Quick Match? Yes. Well, I sent. Uh, I joined the Quick Match, and she was. Uh, converted destroyer. She'd been a very famous war record and she was made into an anti-submarine uh, uh, escort. Uh, they ripped the guns off her, a lot of them, and they put in the big squid gun mounting uh, anti-submarine weapons which fired a big, huge uh, shell right over the top of the ship about a thousand metres in front and an enormous explosion. They were deadly weapons. And we had the best... British sonars, and of course Britain was right at the top in anti-submarine warfare following the Battle of the Atlantic and uh, the huge war against the German submarines. And uh, she was these these uh, escorts were very well equipped, and of course we still had a destroyer speed. Unfortunately, the Navy was having a great difficulty manning ships, so uh, we said we could run on 100 men instead of 220, which was her official uh, and they sent trainees to us and we were sent off up to the Far East and uh, in the Far East we uh, operated with the British fleet and I just had to tell the Admiral I couldn't go at high speed for very long and uh, otherwise we would do anything, which we did. So Andrew, could you tell us what happened after you left the quick match? I was posted then to the uh, British staff in Singapore and the Royal, uh, on exchange with the Royal Navy, and they put me in as their naval planner on what was called the British Defence Coordination Committee, which was the three commanders in chief, Navy, Army, and Air Force, and the president was Lord Selkirk, the Commissioner General for Southeast Asia. Well, he, of course, ran Malaya, and there was a great insurgency going on there under Ching Peng, the uh, Chinese-Malaysian uh, 
leader of the insurgency, and uh, Indonesia was in turmoil. Uh, the uh, danger of the Chinese coming south, Sito uh, was in force, was very much communist China, uh, was very high concern of everybody. And uh, I was in a little team which reported direct to these commanders-in-chief. I was a naval planner, and there was army and air force and a British foreign affairs fella, uh, and we wrote all the papers that were required. It must be remembered that Britain then controlled not just Malaysia and Singapore, but Brunei, it was uh, very much under British protection, and uh, Sarawak and North Borneo were all part of it, and Hong Kong. I was the used to go up there as a naval planner for, for Hong Kong as well. So, And to the CETO meetings with the rest of the British staff, even though I was an Aussie, and that all worked extremely well. CETO was the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation, built up to uh, face what was seen as the communist probability of a world war under the Cold War with Russia and China. It was very much, there was NATO in the West, there was CENTO, which was in the Middle East, and there was CETO, Southeast Asia. And in the CETO organisation, there was Pakistan, the Philippines, Thailand, New Zealand, Australia, Britain and America. And we held, of course, uh, very large exercises in... in, uh, the whole area, particularly the South China Sea. The Russians were very heavily then in in Indonesia and they were re-equipping the Indonesian armed forces with the latest missile armed patrol boats that nobody else had and with uh, the latest aircraft. It was all a very, at the height of the Cold War. You were then posted to the Melbourne. And then after the Melbourne? After the Melbourne, I was sent to, to Navy office, which by this time, of course, was in Canberra. Uh, this was 1964. It was a, about two months before the Voyager collision. And I was sent then to be the director of manning and training. You were then posted to the ARA. What happens next? Well, I was, I was the captain of, of the frigate squadron, as well as, as the captain of the ARA. Uh, another very interesting time, because she was... a equipped with the first of the digital ICARA missile systems. I'd been involved a little bit at the very start of the ICARA system when in the little team I was in in Navy office and decided this was the way the Navy ought to go. Uh, we took the Yarra up to the Far East where we operated with the British fleet and then we did trials with a, a nuclear-powered submarine. Uh, in the middle of all this too, we were called out to... I escort the Sydney into Vietnam and, and we did a certain amount of work off the Vietnamese coast, not much, and came back. And uh, we also did a big exercise in the Indian Ocean where we, where we went into Colombo, the first just, uh, Allied warship to be allowed for many years because they had a communist government under Mr. Bandler and Ike and wouldn't allow Western warships in. And we were the first. And what were some of the experiences during the Vietnam War? Well, I didn't, didn't really have much experience. I, I, that, uh, I wasn't really in the war much. We just escorted the Sydney 
into Wung Tau and protected her there and up and back. And that was really... We did a bit of other work off the coast, but that was all. We were not really involved fully in the war. Did you have any shore leave or opportunity no, to speak no, to No, we just them? kept it. We were right on the QV for, because the uh, anchorage was in range and had been uh, uh, attacked from the shore before. And, and we were very much concerned over frogmen in particular uh, for um, putting limpet mines on us and down on the Sydney. And so we arranged all the defences in these areas. I understood the Vietnamese also had these fast patrol boats which you had to account for. Oh, yes, but not very much down in that area. I think they had to get through the American and our own screens further north. and So that wasn't a great concern, but we were ready for anything because you never know with the war, you never know what's around the corner. Did you speak at the time with any men around Vietnam about their experiences in the field? and how they were affected by it. Yes, a great friend of mine was the captain of the Hobart, and of course she was attacked by American aircraft, which was an absolute disaster, because they'd been identified as being friendly, but they turned, as they passed the uh, American heavy cruiser and the Hobart, they suddenly turned in and loosed off their missiles into the into these ships, and killed a few fellows, and uh, that was one of these disasters, and, and so on. Otherwise, uh, Yes, we spoke to them about bombardments and things, but, and of course we had uh, the helicopter people up, who I was much involved with later on. Uh, they did a marvellous job in the naval helicopter set up up there, and we had the uh, clearance divers and, and so on. That was about it. Your career with the Navy spanned well beyond Vietnam. But what was the reception like for servicemen such as yourself coming home? Terrible. Uh, it was disgusting, most upsetting, because we had political leaders leading the mobs into uh, protesting about the Vietnam War. But this morphed into an antagonism against the armed forces. And uh, all of us had been were doing what should be done, obeying whatever the government was, whether we agreed with their policy or not, we were the armed forces. And that was our job. I know in the uh, later in the Sydney, when uh, I was the captain of the Sydney, we came into uh, Sydney Harbour with a lot of fellows we'd brought back from the uh, army, we'd brought back from Malaysia. And uh, there were several thousand people on the wharf waiting for us. And I got a signal to say that the tugs, there'd be no tugs, there'd be no mail, there'd be nobody to secure us. There'd be no cranes to lift the gangways on. And uh, we were virtually black band. And the navigator turned to me and said, uh, you'd think you were entering a foreign, uh, an enemy port in wartime. Fortunately, we had very good relations with the tugs who broke the ban and they turned up and helped us. But it took several, couple of hours to manhandle these enormous uh, cranes using uh, blocks and tackles and things. And there were these thousands of people with their babies and all the rest of it. And then we were banned for mail, which we eventually broke. And I think the significance is what is mail? Like if you've been at sea and the one thing you're looking forward to is news from home, that came via the mail. 
Absolutely. And how did that affect the ship's company? Great anger, great concern. But it was, it was terribly sad to see a democracy with political leaders leading people who turned against their own armed forces and people, if they're in uniform, got spat on. Well, this wasn't the Australia we knew or that we'd fought to defend. It was just simply disgusting, terrible, most upsetting. Yes, I'm sorry. So you returned to Sydney to a most inglorious reception and the Navy then decides to take you back abroad. Well, before that, the, uh, it was decided that uh, Mr Whitlam decided that he would be uh, nasty to the French and send a ship, a frigate, to uh, sit in the middle of the nuclear explosions, thermonuclear explosions at Moorarrah. Well, there wasn't a frigate that could get there without refuelling, and the only place to refuel was French possessions. And then the tanker was in the dry dock, so the Sydney was stood by to, uh, to go. Then, unfortunately, uh, Dr Cairns, who no doubt had many great strengths, uh, he said everybody who got anywhere near their, their, their offspring may, have, uh, may be uh, greatly affected with all sorts of mutations and things. And uh, the, the wives of our sailors said, what about us and our families? And that was a fair enough. And then Mr Whitlam said, well, anybody who doesn't want to go needn't go. Well, we had a marvellous ship's company, so we lined them all up and said anybody who had a compassionate reason needn't go uh, and, or, or other strong reason to see me, and, and we sorted that out. And the, next, the headline in the... Daily Telegraph, I think, was something like, uh, Prime Minister says anybody who doesn't want to go needn't go, Captain says we're all going. And so we stood by to do that for a few weeks and uh, then the tanker came out of something and she had to stand by and then the thing fizzled out rather. So, Andrew, can you please explain your role in defence at this time? Well, I was sent to, to the Department of Defence and I was the leader of what was called the Joint Policy Staff and we reported to a brigadier who reported to Admiral Dovers, who reported in turn, of course, to, to uh, Sir Henry Bland and to, then later to Sir Arthur Tang, who was... Uh, and then I was there for quite a long time, about three and a quarter years. I was the leader of this team that uh, was uh, Navy, Army and Air Force at uh, my level and a foreign affairs high-level diplomat and a civil uh, member of the, uh, of the uh, Department of Defence. So we produced the, the uh, white papers on defence, which then went through the upper defence machinery, and, and uh, that was that. And at the same time, there were quite a lot of things going on because we, we had the uh, uh, independence of uh, New Guinea was in the, in the offing, um, and uh, we were still under Australian administration. I was sent up with the team to uh, have a look at New Guinea and what was going on. Uh, at that time, of course, the Indonesians were putting people across into the Vonamo area of uh, Northern New Guinea, and we went up with this team to see what was going on, visited various islands and so on. That was uh, my time in defence, and eventually... I got shoehorned out and sent to the IDC in London. 
Imperial Defence College. Again, a very interesting time. We had a Northern Irishman as the deputy commander and a Southern Irishman, a general, as the commander. And the Irish were... Uh, the IRA was in full strength, blowing up people in various parts of London. And, and in fact, they were after our boss, who was a Southern Irishman, in the Imperial Defence College, we were allowed to select a part of the world for a tour. They hadn't been to South America for many years, and I, I put down as my first preference to go to South America, which so we did. And your next posting means you're the CO down at Albatross. It was the busiest uh, military airfield in Australia because we did day and night flying. We had seven squadrons. Uh, I, they taught me how to fly a Mackie very badly and very brave fellow sat in the back seat to, to um, make sure I didn't crash, which didn't happen, fortunately. And uh, it was a very great experience. We then built the Fleet Air Arm Museum there, saved all the old aircraft that had been saved by previous captains, and we created the Naval Aviation Museum. I must share that I've had the pleasure of looking through your museum at Albatross, and it is lovely. I mean, and I was based at Creswell, and I can associate the, the great um, facilities that we had at Albatross and Creswell so, so nearby. So, Andrew, it must have been hard to leave Albatross, but what came next? I was sent up to be the Director General of Operations and Plans in Navy office, uh, the future of the Navy and, and its uh, future plans. And what came after that? And after that, I was promoted to Acting Rear Admiral and I was sent off to uh, London, where uh, shortly afterwards they, uh, uh, I was made a full admiral. And uh, I was the head of the defence staff. In those days, uh, of course, we had uh, 428 officers under my uh, aegis in the Army, Navy and Air Force. And we had them in the British Army of the Rhine. We had them uh, in submarines. We had them in aircraft, and of course the Cold War was very much uh, still in force. And uh, it was a very, in a very interesting uh, job indeed. They asked me to organise a memorandum of understanding with governments in Europe uh, so that eventually if we wanted to, we could use these, these uh, the basic uh, agreements to... Uh, purchase defence equipment or anything else that might be relevant, uh, which I did, and that was interesting, going to see the defence minister's concerns and so on. We uh, had a, a very uh, uh, intriguing time in Britain attending the commissioning of other submarines and launching of destroyers, and, and uh, we took the uh, Minister of Defence up to the first patrol boat, which was being being uh, built at Lowestoft, the Fremantle-class patrol course. And uh, we end up with Lord Fremantle himself, after which, in the course with the same name, a descendant of the original Fremantle, after what she was, Fremantle was named, uh, went up there too. And uh, that particular trip was interesting because we took the Minister for the Navy, of the Royal Navy, and uh, Mr Killen, who's a marvellous raconteur and great company. And we flew up to Norwich and then we got from there a car 
and went down to Lowestoft. It was midwinter, a very silly time to be there. Uh, we did our stuff and looked over the patrol boat. That was all fine and had discussions with uh, the uh, people at uh, Brook Marine in Lowestoft. And then we went back to to uh, Norwich to get in the aircraft. It was an aircraft of the Queen's Flight in Andover. And a huge snowstorm had arrived and the snow was pelting down and and we took off and after we'd taken off about 20 minutes later the captain of the aircraft came down to us and said, uh, Sirs, we're very sorry to tell you the, all the electrics have failed. We've lost communications, we've lost radar, we've lost everything but the engines are going. And we said, well, that's nice and reassuring. And uh, we can't communicate with anybody. Nobody will know where we are because of the snowstorm. So we said, well, what are you going to do? So he said, Ed, because it's very busy, the airspace in, in Britain with airliners going all over the place and uh, military aircraft and so on. We'll fly between the, the levels and we'd help for our base in uh, the very west of England, down the Bryce Norton, I think it was. And uh, so <laughs> Mr. Gillen said, I'm supposed to be giving an address at the mansion house to a great reception tonight, but it appears I won't be there. <laughs> and nobody will know. And uh, the pilot said, well, now, within the next 15 minutes, an air alert will go out all over Britain that this aircraft is missing with all of us on board, and that's that, uh, because they won't be able to know where we are, talk to us or anything. And so the pilot said, "We'll get if we get our DR right, our dead reckoning, because we haven't got any other means of navigation or anything else, when we get down there, we'll dive below the cover and hope that it's still high enough off the ground for us to be able to see, and if we can see the control tower at Bryce Norton, They'll see us and fire a green various light, then we'll land in the snow, which by this time was eighteen inches deep or something. Well, so we went on yarning and we had a bit of a sleep, and and uh, we did arrive and we dived around under the clouds, and we could they could see enough, and they did see us, and we did land, and everybody but somebody, the air officer commanding the whole of the west of. Southwest of Britain was there, and everybody thought we'd crash somewhere, but we hadn't. And uh, so that was a very interesting uh, little sideline of of life. And uh, but we went to all sorts of meetings, met all sorts of people at very high level, and uh, uh, it was a uh, highlight in our life, really. Well, certainly, landing safely enabled your life. This amazing story to continue. So for the fifth time, you bid farewell to London and you return home. Yes, we did. And I was posted then to Sydney here. We, of course, had our house in Canberra and so on, but we uh, were quartered here in that lovely house, Tresco. We had uh, top uh, people from all over the world could stay there with us and you got to know them, people like the head of the British Defence set up, Indian Navy, Japanese, all sorts of people could stay and then you could really get to know them in your house. And uh, so it had a sort of diplomatic role as well as as well as being the Navy house where you could uh, get to have the top members of government and all sorts of people in what is our greatest state in our biggest city and our biggest uh, naval base and, and, and one of our biggest ports. 
And I was in charge, of course, then of the shore stations. I mean, I inspected places like the base in Western Australia, which I was very interested to see again because in the little team I'd been in in defence years before, we'd put up that it was necessary for Australia to start building a decent naval base in Western Australia, and that's where it ought to be. And that had gone through the machinery and it had all, all occurred. So, Andrew, you retired as a Rear Admiral of the Royal Australian Navy and you have served three major conflicts in the 20th century. What is the importance that you see as the Navy for the defence of Australia today? I think you have to get right back to geography because geography controls history and history reflects forward and it governs how people develop and their attitudes to life and everything else. In our case, that great... uh, Russian Admiral, Admiral Gorshkov, who really created the modern Russian Navy, and he was a czar, and uh, he produced class after class of, of Russian uh, warships to uh, challenge the might of the United States. And I'd been at Greenwich when uh, Mr. Khrushchev and Mr. Bulganin visited Britain and they'd been dying down at the Painted Hall and Khrushchev had then said that he was going to build the greatest navy in the world to do exactly that, which he set about to do. And so the Australia, according to Admiral Gorshkov, was the centre of the world's oceans. I often spin the globe and have a look. And actually, it's very hard to find any other place which is so surrounded by sea and by oceans as Australia is, with three great oceans, the Indian, the Southern Ocean, and the Pacific, and of course the Arafura Sea and so on to our north. And of course our early people in 1909, our great uh, Prime Minister, uh, Mr Deakin, supported by the leader of the opposition, Mr Fisher, decided Australia then should get a fleet and look after itself as much as possible. And that was done. Before World War II, just as it was coming up, people began to realise again that tremendous importance of the oceans and a certain amount was done but not to, not nearly as much as it perhaps should have been done to get our Navy in a position to really defend the nation. Uh, I think we knew woke up in a big way after the Battle of the Coral Sea and the government and people realised the importance of aircraft carriers then and uh, then we moved into carriers and after 35 years we created an extremely efficient Carrier Task Force. Small carrier, yes. Excellent defence with guided missile ships with the latest uh, uh, frigates who were excellent in anti-submarine warfare, the best helicopters we could get anywhere and so on, Uh, best minesweepers, and we had the submarines, which were the best conventional ones, the Oberons and so on. We built a very good navy. Uh, That was emasculated, starting with the failure to replace the Melbourne, and uh, then the failure to replace the guided missile ships when they came to the end of their time. The navies never really recovered from that, though it is making strides now. And uh, I think when I left the navy, of course, it was at its top strength, and we could deploy a, a carrier task force, small, yes, but very efficient, and uh, highly, really very well defended and very well supported. And, of course, much of that went 
uh, and it'll take some time yet before we get back to be that capability. So, Andrew, reflecting on everything that you've done, perhaps you should also share the legacy that you've left the nation with regard to why we have an Australian National Maritime Museum today. Well, that uh, is simply that uh, all my life I've been interested in history and Admiral Collins probably fired me off to start with because he believed that Australia should have a National Maritime Museum. Uh, I was there in London, uh, the Australian uh, representative on the Imperial War Museum trustees for about three years and uh, I had a lot of other connections and visited maritime museums all over the world and uh, I felt that it, we ought to have one and when I was the Admiral here I worked hard to look at sites and talk to governments and people and so on and eventually uh, we, we, I wrote the original report and we eventually got a National Maritime Museum for 1988 uh, it didn't open then because it took a bit longer with various problems that arose. But we have a National Maritime Museum now, and, and that I believe uh, it's the best, is the most visited of the local museums in Sydney now. And uh, it will go from strength to strength to be one of the great maritime museums of the world. Rear Admiral Andrew Robinson, thank you for your time, your sacrifice, and your service to our nation. Thank you. Thank you, Angus. It's been a pleasure to uh, speak with you today and I think you're doing a great job. It is extremely important that future generations really consider where the future of Australia lies. That was the second and final part of Angus Horden speaking with Andrew Robertson. If you enjoyed the two-parter, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Good ratings in Apple Podcasts really helps other people discover the show so we can spread further these amazing Australian stories. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...